Welcome to the Policy at McCombs podcast, a data-driven conversation on the economic issues of today. In this series, we invite guests into our studio to provide a highlight of their work presented during a visit to the University of Texas at Austin. Policy at McCombs is produced by the Center for Enterprise and Policy Analytics at the McCombs School of Business. We have two guests with us today. First, Professor of Statistics Richard Hunt from Arizona State. Richard works on causality and decision-making, and he joins me today to help with this interview. Now turning to our main guest, our guest today is Emily Oster, Professor of Economics and Public Policy at Brown University. Emily joins us to talk about her two bestseller books, Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What We Really Need to Know, and the more recent Creep Sheet, A Data-Driven Guide to Better and More Relaxing Parenting from Birth to Preschool. Emily, welcome to Policy Emma Combs. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the story behind the writing of these books. How do you how, tell us how an economist gets gets to to this place of writing these these two uh, um, books? Yeah. So so the sort of short answer is that I got pregnant. Um, that I was an economist, and then I <laughs> and then I was a pregnant economist. Uh, and I got really uh, into kind of what I can only describe as using my job in my pregnancy. And so there were a lot of things that came up when I was first pregnant. I wanted to understand, you know, what is the evidence behind this restriction or this recommendation or this rule? Uh, and I was spending a huge amount of time uh, at home, basically doing doing things that were sort of like what I would do at my job. So reading academic papers, trying to think about decision making and good decision making in the face of the data that we that we have, and. Uh, and that was, I mean, that was really in the service of my own pregnancy, not in the service of, of writing anything like this. But I had always kind of liked to write um, for a more general audience and, and think about how do we explain the ideas that I think are really valuable about from economics, from data, from statistics. How do we explain that to, to people and how do we help them use those data to make good decisions? And so at some point, and this part I have to say is a bit murky in my head, at some point I moved from doing this stuff for my own pregnancy to trying to actually write something for uh, for a, a general audience. And what I found was I really liked doing that. So I really liked the process of, of writing in this way. And then I sort of wrote some and then I had an agent and then I and then I had a book, um, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and so then I, I published the first book, uh, which is now is, it came out in 2013. Um, and I, I had my daughter who was born in 2011. And then uh, I was fairly sure I was not going to write a second book uh, because it's a lot of work to write a book and it's a lot of work to have a kid. Um, and it seemed like maybe doing both of them was not uh, was not really feasible. Um, and I think the other thing is that I, you know, with your first kid, and I know you have two of them also, but I feel like with my with my first kid, every decision about the kid was like made in this sort of totally like chaotic haphazard way. So we would just be like constantly like trying this, trying this and sort of obsessing about a lot of really tiny decisions that did not seem ultimately important in in retrospect. It was very hard to focus on kind of what are the big things we'd want to make choices about. We had a second kid, you know, with your second kid, at least for me, I was like a lot more relaxed, not I'm not a relaxed person, but relatively, I was relatively more relaxed. Uh, and it was much easier for us to focus on on kind of what are the main things I would want evidence about. And it was then much easier to see, okay, well, what kind of book would I write that would help people make choices about those those things? And so then, 
you know, it's, at some point a few years ago, I decided maybe it was time to time to write another one. And so Crib Sheet is the kind of more or less the, the sequel, sort of looking at the same kinds of what does the evidence say? How do you make good decisions uh, around early early parenting? So this the combination of, of data and economics, you talk a lot, a lot in the book and, and trying to separate um, uh, associations from causality. So give us a, a couple of examples that comes to mind when I'm thinking about crib sheet that I found very instructive in, in not only talking about the evidence of this particular issue, but more um, to describe the endeavor overall uh, to connect those informa- that information to the general public is the, uh, about breastfeeding and peanuts. Th- tell us th- in those two chapters. I mean, that's a good summary of what, what goes on there in the seeking causality. Yeah. So so let's sort of start with the question of, of breastfeeding. So when you sort of think about breastfeeding and the kind the ways that breastfeeding is talked about for, for new parents, you really get a lot of the message that like breast milk, breastfeeding is the, is the best it's the thing that is going to make your kid not only healthier and better in the first year, but really forever is going to have these like very long term impacts impacting their IQ, their obesity, other kinds of other kinds of illness. Um, and the, the sort of basic issue with uh, with data on breastfeeding is a lot of the data that we have comes from studies which compare the outcomes for kids who are breastfed to kids who are who are not um, in what we think of as a sort of correlation association kind of way. So like to take a concrete example, let's think about something like IQ. So it is certainly the case if you compare kids who are breastfed to kids who are not and you look at differences in their IQ, you will see differences in IQ. Some of them are very large. But when you look at the at the characteristics of the parents, you will find that uh, the moms who choose to breastfeed and who breastfeed for longer tend to be better educated. They tend to be richer. They tend to have more other resources. Um, they tend to be white. They have a bunch of other features, which we know in the data is also correlated with outcomes for their kids. So we know that maternal education matters for kids' test scores. Uh, and we also know that it matters for breastfeeding. And so it's hard to isolate the impacts of breastfeeding from the impacts of all of the other things that are um, that are that are different. Um, and so so in the book, I try to kind of go through and help people understand how might we get better evidence on that. So we have millions, I mean millions, we have tens, maybe hundreds of studies of these correlations between breastfeeding and and good and good outcomes for for kids. But we don't have that many. Uh, studies which do a better job on causality, but we do have some. So, for example, there's one kind of randomized control trial of of breastfeeding, which has some of its own issues, but um, but does does a bit better on this. And then we have actually a number of um, of what we call sibling fixed effect studies. So studies where they actually compare two kids within the same family. Uh, and they look, one of whom is breastfed and one of whom is not, and they look at whether there are differences in IQ that show up there. So if you thought it was really the breast milk as opposed to other characteristics of the mother, you would expect the differences to show up there, and they they don't. So kids who are, when one sibling's breastfed and one sibling's not, you really see basically no difference in their, um, in their IQ. So so I sort of try to, to use that as a frame to help people think about, you know, what really are the benefits of breastfeeding. And I think in the end, when you do that in a, in a sort of you know, meta away for all of these outcomes, you do find that there are some things where breastfeeding does seem to benefit the kids. So particularly some early life digestion, maybe some early life allergy stuff um, seems to be improved by breastfeeding. There actually seems like there's maybe some evidence of uh, reductions in breast cancer for the mother, sort of long-term long-term impacts. Um, but on a lot of these kind of long-term impacts for kids like IQ and obesity and other kinds of health, the best data just does not support those, those things. So I think the message of sort of breast is best, 
you know, it, yeah, it's it's best, um, but it's maybe not as as much best as might be implied by the phrase uh, "breast is breast is best." Um, so that's kind of a classic sort of like co- correlation versus causation um, causation space. Um, so I'll say something, but the peanuts are sort of. An, I, I agree, it's another interesting place. So so here the question is. Uh, is how you expose your kids to to allergens. Um, so peanut allergies have gone up a lot over time. There has been sort of historically, and not by historically, I mean this is the advice I was given with my eight year old. Uh, you were told people were told not to expose our kids to peanuts because if because that would make them more likely to be allergic, or you wanted to, you know, wait and and so when they did, if they did have a bad reaction, they were older. There was sort of like a, some stuff in that in that space. Um, but at some point, somebody did uh, a very simple study where they just looked at the difference between in peanut allergy rates between kids in Israel and kids in the UK, so Jewish kids in the UK and kids in and kids in Israel, and they found that basically rates of peanut allergies are way, way, way lower in Israel than they were in the UK. So this is just like a correlational study, and it's fact. It's like in some ways even worse than the breastfeeding stuff because it's like literally like a cross country comparison. It's like Israel. I mean, could, could you imagine some like oh, I'm sure that that's the only thing that's different. You know, Israel versus the UK. Like, at least they're looking at Jewish kids in both places. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. And that really fixes your exactly. It fixes your problem. Um, But what they say in the in the in that paper, their theory is that Israeli kids eat a lot of this peanut snack um, as like a as an early food. So there's a peanut snack called Bamba that's very popular in in Israel. It's like a puffed. My daughter loves those. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, delicious. Who doesn't like peanuts? And so kids, kids are eating a lot of this at very young ages. And so they had this idea that like, okay, exposure is, um, you know is good for preventing allergies. What's great about that literature is that they didn't stop there. So if they sort of just had that, you'd be like, okay, what can we what can we learn? But then they actually did a randomized control trial where they uh, randomly exposed some kids to peanuts uh, early and some kids not. And the effects there are huge. Like the difference in allergy development is like 70%. Um, and so basically exposing kids to peanuts, um, and I think it turns out other allergens as well, early on, like pretty much, you know, four months, kind of as soon as you're exposing them to any foods, that that turns out to be very good at preventing allergies. Um, so that's a kind of like a good example where we sort of started with the kind of evidence that you would say, ideally, we would use this as suggestive evidence and not as the as the sort of end all piece of evidence. And then they actually did the next thing, which is the like real randomized control trial where you can be more confident about causality. So in the case of uh, breastfeeding, that's not, they haven't done that. The best we have is the um, sibling study. So there is one randomized control trial of of breastfeeding. It was run in Belarus in the 1990s. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty big um, and it's an encouragement design. So basically they, they encourage some women to breastfeed and some women they don't encourage them and they get pretty large, a pretty large, what we'd say first stage. So pretty large difference across groups in, uh, in their extent of, of breastfeeding, um, both ever breastfeeding, but especially sort of continuation. Um, so, so people have used that study to look at outcomes like, um, both sort of short and long-term outcomes. And there you see very consistent with what you'd see from the sibling studies. You see sort of some evidence of, um, of kind of digestive benefits, uh, maybe some rash reduction early on, but you don't see sort of consistent differences in, in IQ or test scores later. You don't see differences in obesity or other kind of health measures later. So on the one hand, I think it's a good, um, it's it's a good study because it's randomized. It also isn't necessarily the most 
comparable setting to the sort of current uh, kinds of questions people would ask in, in the U.S. So, you know, it's now actually pretty old. Um, so I would like to see that people do more of that. Uh, it doesn't seem that, uh, to hear you describe it, it doesn't sound particularly equivocal. Uh, in other words, at this point, if, would you say that the the data is in and um, the effect sizes are definitely smaller than the media would suggest yeah i i think that's right i mean look i always like i always want more data um and i think that you know we most of the estimates we have at the moment come with a fair amount of error so you know could like i think that they they suggest that the effects are smaller than the kinds of things that are that are stated in the media or does that mean that they're zero you know i think that's that's like outside the range of what we can do with our with our current sure so but yeah i mean i i think we we have a lot of there are some places in the book where I say, like, you know, the problem is we just don't have a lot of data on this. This is a place where we do have a lot of data. And so that raises the question sort of why um, why it doesn't seem clear-cut to people. And we were talking earlier about opportunity cost reasoning. Um, can you speak to the way you think about that in terms of specifically the, the breastfeeding example? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one way to th- one way to think about it is let's imagine that breastfeeding was something that was, like, super easy and you could do like just in a just it would be trivial so it would be you know it's like vitamin d drops or something something where you just kind of like put a little thing on your kid's forehead every morning then probably we would say you should do it because there do seem to be some some benefits right so so i think in in that world it's you would see why you would want to get people to do it and i think a lot of the approach to breastfeeding has kind of taken on that frame of like, well, everyone should do this. So let's just like, let's really spend a lot of time talking about how great it is. Maybe we overstate the benefits a little bit, you know, so we just really want people to get get to do this. And I think what that misses, and this is what you're talking about, is like, actually, this is both very difficult for a lot of people, like literally very hard to do. But also, it it is very costly in terms of your of your time. So one of the things people say about breastfeeding is it's 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 free. Like it's such a great deal because it's free. That's that's like the tr- crazy. Like you know, and when I sort of think about the the kinds of time that people spend, you know, pumping, nursing, like time out of the labor force, like you know, e- even if you just just think about the pumping time, like I don't think people realize like if you want to exclusively breastfeed a baby and you are at your job, like you need like thirty minute pumping breaks every you know three hours, and it's not that easy to work. While you're pumping, <laughs> you can do it, but it's distracting. It's yes. distracting. So then it's, it's exactly. So we emphasize the cost. There's a lot of costs that there, people there don't necessarily think about ahead of time. Yeah. And 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 you know, I think that the the to me the most impressive aspect of both of your books is this is fit, make people face that issue. The fact that these decisions are not made in a vacuum. They have costs. They have opportunity costs. They have they have trade offs that you have to, to to think about. And 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 when you do, I guess. Um, it, it, what what is the I don't know? Did you do, did you do any calculations on that when the breastfeeding? Do you have a sense of you know the typical labor force costs associated with potentially I, breastfeeding? Because that would I, be very nice to see. I don't think we. Yeah, I think that would be interesting to see, and I don't think we have a great sense of it. I mean, in part, it's very complicated by the fact that actually, like the people who are doing the most of this, the people who are like most likely to breastfeed, are actually also people with pretty high value of time, right? So I think they're sort of like the like the breastfeeding rates are much higher among particularly continuation of breastfeeding are much higher among more educated, um, you know, higher income women, where you might have thought that that would sort of go the other 
go the other direction. Um, really and I think there's another piece of this, which is sort of different from the opportunity cost, which is just about support, um, where, you know, actually it's not like it's physically difficult to get to sort of get started doing this. So one of the things you see is that actually breastfeeding initiation rates at the moment are very, very high. So a very, very, very large share of, of women in the U.S. Tr- report trying to breastfeed or doing it for, you know, a day or two. But when you look at continuation, even, you know, a, for a few weeks, they're way, they're way lower. So it suggests that there's a sort of like pretty big drop off where people try to do this and either just decide it's not for them or it doesn't um, or it doesn't work. And I think that that we spend a lot of time telling people that they should do this and maybe not as much time like helping them do it. Which is another cost there, too. People get really frustrated and they feel that they're failing their kids depressed. and depressed. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So you have had a the you said the story of your book uh, started with your pregnancy essentially, but but your interest research wise has been related to um, the medical field uh, for longer than that. Yeah. Um, sort of. Did you? What was your reasoning? Was this something you had always been interested in? Um, how did that come about? Yeah. So I I um, when I was in when I entered college, I thought that I would be a, a doctor or like I've always been very interested in research, and so I guess I thought I would be like a medical researcher. I had sort of some specific ideas about being a, a more of a heart scientist kind of person. And then I um, the summer after my freshman year, I had sort of two jobs. I was like a like a kind of part time research assistant for an economist named Chris Avery, who's at the Harvard Kennedy School, and he was doing some stuff about schooling. Um, and then I worked in a fruit fly lab. Um, which was like my, you know, like I'm going to be like a like a scientist. Um, and it was awful. Um, I mean, I, I like I, I there was nothing wrong with this person's fruit fly lab. And like, obviously, like we have learned a tremendous amount of from fruit flies. But what I learned is that I was not cut out for this. Uh, for this experience of of kind of hard science for a bunch of different uh, for a bunch of different reasons, so I sort of pivoted into um, I pivoted in, in more into into economics, um, but I re- I retained a lot of interest in in medicine. And I've sort of a lot of if you look at a lot of my work, it has this sort of uh, flavor of kind of overlapping a little bit with um, with medicine and and kind of being in reading a lot in the medical literature so there's a so i think part of what made it possible to to do these books and to do the kind of research that led into them was that i had a pretty good sense of the medical literature and how like how one would sort through that um coming into into doing this which isn't going to be true of everybody in economics and and what has been your experience as a social scientist a, a very quantitative one working in a medical field, has the reception uh, been mainly smooth and positive, or? Um, yeah, you know. Uh, so I mean, I think there's kind of two two sets of people that that I interact with a lot. One is like doctors, um, and you know, I I would say I have I have mixed but mostly pretty positive uh, relationships with people who actually practice medicine, and that's particularly true as the as the books have kind of aged. So I think I got more pushback. On the first book when it first came out, um, because we could talk about it, but some of the stuff about alcohol and some of these other things. And I think the first book also feels a bit more confrontational with sort of my own experience with the medical system during pregnancy was very frustrating. And I think that comes out in the book a little bit. Um, that was like less, much less true with the with the second book. And so my I've kind of my all of my pediatrics experience has been great. I love all the pediatricians that I encounter. Um, and so so there I, I you know, I think we, I've had sort of more positive positive interactions. I will say when I I spend a lot of time in the epidemiology literature, 
Um, and this isn't a comment about interacting with epidemiologists, um, but or, you know, I would say sort of public health literature in general. I find that literature incredibly frustrating. Um, and I think that I just like the the lack of really taking seriously concerns about causality in analysis of observational data is just I, like something I, I, I just I don't just don't totally get it here. <laughs> I don't know I mean, it just <laughs> yeah. I, I mean and I find it like on the one hand they've got a lot of RCTs like that's great but then when they're not using RCTs you know we're we're regressing and again this is like I'm overgeneralizing there is there are of course people in this space that take causality seriously but there's so much of this you know the New York Times is covering you know eggs kill you eggs don't kill you you know eggs are great for you coffee's the death coffee's gonna make you live forever it's like you know it's it's selection it's all just selection <laughs> different kinds of selection yeah. yeah so do you think that you'll be uh i mean right now you're sort of a um the representative of a certain type of of research in this space and i was asking people because they knew i was going to talk to you what should i ask her and one of the questions was do you think that there are going to be more people that do this type of work or are you just always going to be a unicorn um <laughs> um i i hope so i mean i would really like to see more of a push in this t towards like the credibility revolution in this um, in this like medical literature space. So if you sort of think about the path of of economics, and I understand I'm going to reveal here that like I'm an economist and I think that what we do is like the right stuff, but that's okay. That's part of the thing. Um, you know, I think that that over time we have really improved our ability to do inference out of observational data and the sort of seriousness with which people think about research design as a way to understand causality and observational data. I would like to see more of that uh, in these other spaces. And I think that, you know, as people have started talking more about publication bias and p-hacking, and I, I feel like that's that's in the zeitgeist, you know, I look at like JPI and EDs, like there's like a, it feels like there's a moment where maybe we could push a little bit more on on that um and i also feel like there's more public interest in kind of thinking seriously about about causality you know i feel like when i when reporters call me now about to comment on medical studies they are more skeptical sometimes like they sometimes will call and be like you but, know but that's selection again right they're yeah, calling you okay. <laughs> but they're, i mean they're writing for yes i agree that's it's, yeah thank you thank you carlos i appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> um, but but uh, let me, a question that I think Richard had as well. But but let me uh, get there. Is it, I agree with you that 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 in the social science economists are far ahead in terms of thinking hard about causality in observational studies and being very you know they, and they, they lead the way to other fields to follow and that has been happening for a long time. And here's another field where where it can, can take advantage of that. But the framework of of causal inference based on on null testing, for example, is not particularly well suited for decision making. And that's something that you bring in the book, this connection between evidence and decision-making, which is fantastic. That's how we, you know, particularly statisticians like Richard and I, like to think about the world as everything is a decision-making problem. So have you, have you given any thought to that issue and, and thinking about maybe even frameworks of inference that might actually be useful to make the connection between the evidence we collect and the decision-making process? No, oh, that's super interesting. Um, I haven't thought that much about that, but I think you're exactly right that sort of you could frame the whole 
the you could frame the sort of the whole thing as like kind of ultimately the goal is the goal is decision making. The goal is not to know is there a causal impact of X on Y. It is like to to know like should I do behavior? You know what should I basically should I do this behavior? And that and that continue. Yeah, that's very um, no. The answer is I haven't thought that much about that, but that seems great. It seems like more like the, the st- sort of statistician approach. Yeah, we, we've been we've been involved in a couple of studies in psychology now, where where you know it's obvious that the traditional the the credibility revolution going on there. There's this huge endeavor in trying to make sure that we pre-register everything that you know, and 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 almost like a completely overcorrection to the situations where all those studies were not being able to be replicated and so on. Uh, but we tried to work on with tools that hopefully would help people. In thinking about okay, what I learned from this RCT, if I were to now run the second one, you know, how would I prioritize, for example, the groups that might be more susceptible to the treatment and and so on, and, and think about, you know, but that's a long endeavor. It's not it's not an easy thing, and and um, I think the psychologists have been open more open to receiving that kind of tools that we've been working with than quite honestly the economists. Um, yeah, I mean, I and and, and uh, making that connection, it's something that that would be kind of neat. Yeah, I think there's also a space for sort of more like kind of a, of a Bayesian approach to some of these, that, here, some here of these again. things, that's right? What, I mean, he is like he's <laughs> talking, to right? This is sort of like, yeah, I mean, I think we, we have a lot of, in a lot of these spaces, one of the things that seems kind of weird is like we're kind of, everything is sort of some frequentist thing. And so you'll have like, you know, a thousand pieces of like a huge amount of like biological and other kind of priors that basically X does not affect Y or couldn't, you know, and then it'll be like, well, we have one study where X affects is, affects it's like, well, you know, like, yeah, okay, but like, do you, do you know, you know, you have a base, like, this? <laughs> and so I think that's, and that feels to me like pretty important for the decision making piece, piece of this, or just like, how do we bring these pieces of evidence together? Yeah. To oversimplify a bit, you must have noticed this when writing, um, that the the old saw that absence of evidence is not the evidence yeah. of absence, and you have to write around it all yeah. the time because I, you, I would find in your writing, you would say, it's statistically significantly, we can't show. That it's not zero, right? But then, in the very next sentence, you have to basically say, "But to the extent that we have estimated it, we think that it might be positive, right?" And then you have to take that into account. It's just yeah. it's a difficult the, the whole framework is just difficult to talk about. I think yeah. we've all taught statistics, and it's just yeah. a, a nightmare. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I have. Go ahead. Go ahead. We, we had, we had we some had, more questions. Yes. Um, so, so I think the two themes that are coming up here, and I think it's. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but causality and then uh, utility yeah. are, are the two things that come up. And, um, y- you know, both of those things are hard. Uh, the utility one is kind of interesting because th- there's some evidence that people don't actually know their utilities that well. Um, do you think that, like, how uh, in some of these problems, in some cases, when it has to do with an infant death or something horrible mm-hmm. like that? the utility function is kind of obvious, but I think there's a lot of cases, especially in your second book that are sort of lifestyle things. And yeah. it's really hard to, hard to say, do you have an approach for that? What do you tell people when they ask you, I don't actually yeah. know my mind. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I think that a lot of progress on this can be made by just being a little bit more deliberate about the weight, about the fact that things are, are choices. Um, so you know, rather like I think you're right that like the, when we think when we talk about utility as as economists or statisticians, we have this sort of like you have some utils and you're right like nobody knows what their 
what their their utils their utils are. Nobody's aware of their of their utils or what that what that is. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Um, exactly. They read the star utils and the non-star utils. Um, but uh, but I do think sort of framing um, just just trying to sort of say okay these are your two like these are your two choices and think about your life with this and with you know sure. uh without this or you know think about this in the context of other choices you um you will make or what is the alternative um i think those are you know th- just like in th- there's not a lot of deliberateness almost i would say people are not deliberate yeah. about these these choices and i think sometimes that reveals um sometimes that kind of frame can can help reveal uh can help reveal what people what people want. Yeah. Um, but you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of things like, you know, potty training is like the biggest thing in the book where it's just like, yeah, whatevs. Um, you know, it's sort of like people are like, what is the right age to potty train? Basically, like there is no right age. If you wait longer, it will take less time, but you will have to change poopy diapers for longer. And, you know, if you try to do it earlier, like it's gonna take more time. They're gonna pee on the floor some of the time. But you know, like then you'll be then you'll be done. And you know, you need to like interrogate what is your feeling on diapers yeah. and and yeah. Yeah, that's it but there's no like there's no like secret way to make that choice uh, so i mean you advocate a lot for for th- thinking about the collecting the data thinking about the the costs and then making a decision and for some of the problems um that you use in in your books uh, you let off with uh, do we eat as a family or mm-hmm. do we uh eat separately yeah. and we take out and you know it it seems to me some of those cases are distinct or, or different from the medical cases in that you get feedback immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in those cases, is it profitable to encourage people to experiment? And you might say a lot, you know, breastfeeding might to some extent be the same way to the extent that that you can, less so. And yeah. it, it seems to be a spectrum of experimentation versus we have to make this decision to once their utilities. And, right. and figure it out. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, that sort of good decision making, if you sort of think about like how do we advocate people make decisions in you know, outside of the home context, good decision making would involve thinking about the choice, making the choice, reviewing the choice, you know, having like a structured process for making some of these these decisions. I think that sort of saying like you should experiment is maybe exactly exactly right. There are many things where it's it's a like a little bit hard to really like kind of experiment. And I think the other thing that happens is is people don't uh, think carefully about the the sort of review piece of this. You just sort of like yeah. fall into like doing something, and then that's the thing you're you're doing. And there isn't a moment where you step back and you're like, okay, actually, is this like is this something that's working? You just wait until sort of things crash around or down around <laughs> yeah. you, and then you're like, oh yeah. god, that's not working. Like I thought it would. Yeah. Um, just to switch switching a little bit to to other areas in which this approach of data and economics you think might be helpful. We we'll mentioned a little bit about the fact that that you would like to see more in the medical field. Um, did you did you start a trend? I mean, do you think that there are other folks out there trying to bring that kind of approach to areas that you didn't expect? Or I don't know. In other words, I'm asking: Have you read something recently? Any interesting book that that sort of mimics that approach and try to apply it to different areas? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I've I think that there's. You know, there are some people who have worked on kind of like school. I mean, economists have gotten more into like writing popular books um, since I wrote this. I don't think because of me, but just like whatever. There's been more of this. Or maybe. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably it's it's actually it's totally me. 100 percent. Nothing to do with Piketty. Who goes by that guy? Uh, No, but, you know, I think that there's there are a bunch of spaces where economists are working where you can imagine sort of 
translating that work in a way that's sort of more direct into like sort of like work on schooling or, um, you know, the there actually is another economist parenting book by like Matthias Depke and Zilliboti, I think, that's like about like kind of the, the kind of theory of 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 parenting. Um, so, you know, I think that there's some <laughs> there's some push in in that in that direction. Um, but I don't know that there's anything quite in this quite in this space. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so this is maybe the most confrontational question yeah. uh, that I have for you, which is that um, not everybody's created equal in their decision making skills. Sure. And you know, this is certainly something when uh, medical bodies or institutions have to come up with policies. Um, what do they think? They kind of have to go for a lowest common denominator uh, approach. And um, so, in short, maybe more information is not always better for outcomes. Um, I, surely you've thought about this. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think a lot about this when we're we're kind of um, talking about something like sort of safe sleep guidelines or even something, you know, like alcohol and pregnancy, kind of like if we if we think, if we agree, let's, let's take safe sleep. So there's an issue of like, you know, should your kid, that's their sleep guidelines or your kid should sleep like alone in their crib, not in your bed with no stuff around. And mm-hmm. um, and some pieces of those safe sleep guidelines are easier to, to do than others. Um, it's easy to not have bumpers in your crib and not have a lot of pillows in there, but it may be much harder to get your kid to sleep alone. Um, and... I think from the standpoint of the of the of the AAP, um, there's kind of a feeling like, okay, we're just going to we're going to say these things. But this is the safest way. And if everybody did this, that would be like kind of the safest, the safest thing thing to do. Um, But what I think is is hard about that messaging is that then if people can't do that or or don't do it, you haven't given them any guidance about how bad it is to deviate in different directions. And so there's a sort of piece of like, yes, it would be best if everybody did this one thing. So let's just tell them to do that one thing and not give them any information about the other the other things. Um, but then if they choose not to be in the box that you have given them, they they may deviate in a way that's that's really bad. So let's take the example of, of safe sleep. So you tell people you're you can't have your kids sleep in your bed. It's dangerous to have your kids sleep in, in your bed. Um, but the, the truth about the data is that it is probably slightly riskier to have your kids sleep in your bed, but that risk is really different if you are sleeping, like, you know, if the adults are not smoking and not drinking, if there aren't a lot of other covers in the bed, um, if you sort of think if you're, so those are kind of the big factors and, but we don't really tell people that. So we just say it's not safe to do this. So then you can, you can people will sort of accident they'll almost like accidentally do it or they'll they'll do it but they they won't do it in the safest way possible because no one's told them that there's a safer and less safe way it's just like don't do this well once i'm doing it i might as well like sleep on the sofa but actually no sleeping on the sofa with your infant is like really 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 dangerous way more dangerous than sleeping in a sort of the safest kind of co-sleeping environment so i think that's the piece where we want to be a little bit careful about this idea that just telling people the safest thing is right because it, it may be very hard for them to actually achieve that. Yeah. It's notable that what you described still entails some processing of the data. It's not like you're just providing the tables. You're actually giving a rank-ordered uh, menu, and you're saying that one might be on the top, but then, you know, um, and it reminds me of um, 
some colleagues of, of one-time colleagues of ours, um, uh, Dick Thaler and mm-hmm. Cass Sustine, um, uh, their book Nudge, uh, which basically it sounds sort of a similar process. Uh, did you ever talk to them about your book in the context of their idea of uh, well, not no. I mean, I've, t- I've talked to Dick it. a lot about this, to Richard a lot about the about this book uh, about the books, um, but I haven't talked to him about the. But I think you're right. It sort of has this that kind of feel. Because in some way, the behavior. Oh, yeah take on all this that well no we can't let people's utility functions make the decisions because they have all these problems in their psychology right. and therefore we need to nudge them in some way they have been paternalistic to some extent right uh, and I think your presentation is more traditional econ in sense of like no I mean here's the data you have your utility go ahead and empower yourself to make a decision yeah. right yeah and, and I think I mean I think in these spaces in both of the parenting although probably even more so in the in the pregnancy space I think there is too little uh, credit given to people about their ability to sort of a- like ascertain their utility functions, make decisions, think about risks and and benefits for themselves. And I think that's, um, you know, I think there th- that can border on disrespectful, honestly, particularly in the in the sort of pregnancy case that they're sort of like, oh, don't worry, I'll tell you what to do. You know, you're just like a little pregnant lady, you know, as opposed to to recognizing that that a lot of women uh, are actually perfectly capable of making choices for themselves. It has to be has to be sort of somewhere in between, right? Because if it's it, it, respect versus ex post outcomes, you know what I mean. So yeah. I, I I really liked the articulation of having a menu. Like that seems like I had never thought about that yeah. uh, in particular. That seems like a nice middle ground. Yeah, and I think there's a way. I mean, there's also in a lot of these things like there's a way to like be be respectful of people's decision making autonomy while not just being like do whatever. You know, sort of like. You know, t- telling them basically, like, I recommend that you, you know, make this choice about your birth. And, you know, here is why I think that's important is that is something which, of course, doctors should be empowered to say, in fact, is like their their job, but maybe different than saying, like, you have to do this or your kid is going to, you know, have some terrible, terrible outcome. You yeah. know, I mean, I, when when my son, I will tell you, when my my son was born, uh, he had jaundice. And they came and like, I mean, like a couple of days, you know, we went home, somebody came, they took his blood, they called, the doctor called us and she was not a regular doctor. And she was just basically like, you know, your kid is, this is his number. And I said, okay, can you help me understand like, you know, like what, what exactly, like, how do you, where is the data on the cutoffs? My first kid hadn't had this, I didn't have any data. Like, where's the data on the cutoffs? Like, how do I understand? How do I understand this? And she was just like, you know, I'm telling you what to do. If you don't bring your kid in to back into the hospital, like he's going to have brain damage. And, you know, that was, there was, and of course that was like, just to be clear, in our case, 100% wrong. Like, there was nothing. I mean, jaundice can cause brain damage, but we were, like, distantly far from any number that would even – actually would even recommend hospitalization, let alone mm-hmm. be a risk for, for something. But it was sort of, like, presented in this way that was um, – that was – really not respectful of the fact that like perfectly reasonable people could differ on this. And then in fact, the question of just, can you help me understand where these cutoffs come from and, you know, how you process this, like that, that the sort of the frame was kind of like, I can't believe you would even suggest that you would have an opinion about this and that you would even think to ask this question. I told you what to do. I'm the doctor. Um, that has to be was, infuriating. Yeah, it was, and it was really. I was so angry. <laughs> um, and actually, the next day, this person sort of at, at like I did bring him back to the hospital because, of course, you know, you 
three days postpartum and somebody tells you if you don't bring your kid back to the hospital, he's going to have brain damage, I guess you bring you him back it, to right. the hospital. That's the vulnerability also. That, that's yeah. really irresponsible. Is the like, fact what are you going right, to, you know, what right. are you going to do? So we brought him back to the hospital and, you know, he's too, obviously he was fine, didn't really have any jaundice. Um, and, but then the next day she did come in and say, and she, she had, like figured out, I mean, she came in the next morning before rounds and told me, oh, I figured out who you were. Uh, how, now I figured out who you are and I think we can work together. And I, I just want to be clear. This is not a, like a person who is a pediatrician. This is like some hospital, pedi- you know, this was like some random person. But it was a very, it was sort of very telling moment where I wanted to be like, okay, like I understand that I, I know why you're reacting that way. But just to be clear, it doesn't matter whether I'm a professor or a parenting book offer or anything else. Like that is a perfectly reasonable question. What cutoff did you enter? And where, like, where are you getting your, your evidence from? That's a question that could be asked by anybody. So you should be respectful to, to people, even if they are not going to go on the radio and the podcast to talk about your behavior. <laughs> time for one more? Yeah. There's a few more. Go ahead. Um, so the, here's a half-baked idea of mine. Uh, one of the things that I'm interested in in my own research is heterogeneous treatment effects. Mm-hmm. So not every drug affects everybody also the same very way. Interesting Transla- in translate okay. that. To, to yeah, yeah. Well, it's just uh, different people have different responses to different treatments. Yeah. And um, one of the things that's occurred to me is that almost all of the medical literature has been focused on average treatment effects. There's good reasons for that uh, and not so good reasons for that. Um, but in particular, it, as a thought experiment, I was wondering maybe getting anecdotal advice with multiple anecdotes. So from people close to you who are more like you can sometimes be better than knowing about an underpowered medical study based on a population that might not be like you. Um, and as a, as a logical matter, of course, that's the case. Um, but I don't know to what extent it's real. So if you just, what are your thoughts on heterogeneous effects and, and whether or not it salvages folk wisdom in any circumstances? So this, this is a, a sort of source of a lot of, when you ask doctors, like, why do they rely so much on their own experience in giving, in giving advice? It, you know, either sometimes the answer is just like, I don't know, that's how I, that's how I do it. But I think if you, if you kind of, for, there are many thoughtful people who would say, look, I, the reason I give this advice is because even though I know these the, the sort of average treatment effects from these studies, I have a lot of expertise on my population. And I am kind of triangulating between the sort of like trying to, to use my population to figure out the treatment effects that are specific to the people that I work with and kind of com- combining that in some way with these others. So, I mean, I think this is like a super important uh, super important space. It comes up all the time, even in, R- in the sort of RCT, like good RCT evidence around something like obstetrics. So you'll have like a good RCT that is about the impacts of induction on C-sections or mm-hmm. something. This is like the most recent thing that that has come out. Um, but if you sort of dig into like that's a those are can be great studies. They're big. They're powered. They, you know, they're they give you a lot of evidence. They come out of fancy teaching hospitals. Right. So this sort of really big trial that recently came out about induction and C-sections, the the C-section rate in the trial in the hospitals in the trials, like 18, 20 percent for the for the for the control group. That's, you know, the C-section rate in the U.S. is like 35%. So if these places are very selected in a particular way. Are those average treatment effects relevant for the for the other? I mean, this is a little different than heterogeneous, but not really. I mean, it sort of says like your, your RCT is a late for, you know, it's an average treatment effect yeah. for the, the people who are willing to be in, yes. you know, where the hospitals can like do a protocol in this, RC, in this RCT. So, you know, I think the the idea of, you know, even using... 
some of these tools that people have taken to try to kind of combine observational, like sort of bi- like biased observational evidence, but where you can get heterogeneity with good, you know, average re- with with good randomized evidence, yeah. where you can like that that feels like something where economists again have sort of probably also statisticians have like you know <laughs> tried to make some progress, uh, and where where you could sort of do more um, do more here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so. Yeah, it's an interesting. Yeah. A. I'm not sure, like listening. I'm not sure I would have put like listening to your friends in this space. <laughs> like, well, I, I was know, imagining I see, I more like grandmas, you know, yeah, folk yeah, yeah, wisdom yeah, right. in, the, in the sense, like you know, yeah. we've seen this here in this group in some ways that somehow is different because I was imagining in particular will... a population that is distinct in some very particular way, an indigenous group in a particular yeah. geography yeah, yeah. that the advice passed down from generation there might be contra the controlled studies, but might make perfect sense in the context yes. of that climate or you know. Yeah, yeah, whatever. that seems that's seems totally um, that seems right all right one more one more yes uh, well this is this is too easy though but maybe okay. it's go into close so uh, y- medical info is going to change have you signed yourself up for a lifetime of uh doing edits on updating your book, the book. Yeah. Updating, updating, the book. <laughs> updating the book so we have updated the first book uh a few times and i think we'll do a, like a much bigger update in the next couple of years um and so you know i think i don't know if i've assigned myself up for like a lifetime <laughs> Um, but I think as long as people are buying the books, yeah, I would like them to be, um, I would like them to be updated. Um, and you know, I don't know. It's of like it's it's fun. It's sort of fun to stay up on this this literature. Well, for what what's worth, uh, thank you so much for writing this book. As a parent and a, as a uh, as a husband, they were incredibly useful for for, for our family, and, and I think a lot of families can take advantage of that. And thank you, Richard, for joining us today. And thank you, Emily. Absolutely. Thank Thanks. you, guys. This is fun. Before we wrap up, you can get more information in our Medium page. Thanks for listening to Policy Emma Combs. See you next time.